Hello and welcome to the Strong Habits podcast. This is episode 34. It's me, your host, Penny Vavridis. I went to a pub for the first time today, out in Hertfordshire with my family. The first time since Boris told us to, not the first time ever. I have been to pubs before. I had to leave my phone number with the woman in case anyone brings Covid in so she can let me know. Wish me luck, folks. Hopefully I don't get a call. The pub itself was super quiet and we didn't have to interact with anyone. For sure not ready to attempt such things in London yet. Anyway, in this episode, I speak with a very wonderful guest, Sophie Thomas. Sophie is a personal trainer that I sort of virtually know through Instagram. This is the first time we've ever spoken outside of DMs, and I really feel like we could be friends. I'm probably going to push for that. (laughs) Making friends as adults is a bit weird, isn't it? Anyway, we spoke about so many things, and I think you're going to love it. So I'm just going to go straight to that now. Enjoy. So, I have another special guest for you, Sophie Thomas. Sophie, welcome, welcome. How are you doing? Oh, thank you, Penny. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. How are you? I am all right, thank you. Why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners, let them know why they should listen to you and why they should care? Um, yeah, maybe, maybe don't listen to me. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> <laughs> maybe you'll go crazy if you listen to me. Um, <laughs> so my name's Sophie um, and I've been a PT now for five or six years. I've been in the industry. Um, I'm, I'm a relative newbie compared to a lot of people. Um, and on the side, I, I, I started fitness through modeling, actually. That's how it came to be. And then I eventually wanted to help people. So I wanted to um, I, I gain the vacation and become a coach. And I loved every minute of it. And I love every minute of it, present tense. And at the moment, I'm pursuing a master's in psychology because for me, um, part of my journey was a lot of it became um, under the umbrella of mental health and ameliorating my mental health. And that meant understanding what the hell was going on in my brain. And so I really wanted to also do the masters to kind of help amalgamate my, my philosophy, so to speak, on fitness and how the brain and the mind and our sense of selves are really involved in the process of coaching and lifestyle change. Um, and apart from that, that's, that, that's about me. I'm just um, a coach in London, cracking on, really fed up of all the, the myths out there. That's, I, think, I think I'm a very cynical coach. I, I, I'm, I'm, I try and obviously empower my clients. Sometimes I get so angry when I see <laughs> them out there. That's my niche. I get angry. <laughs> yeah, gosh. I don't know if you saw the thing I posted yesterday about the blood type diet. The world right. is just full of just nonsense. Just nonsense. Oh Every day more nonsense. Oh, my God. Well, it's, 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 it's also... It's kind of, it's both sad and scary because those, those companies, those people, those individuals, those entrepreneurs, they have a lot of followers. And when you've got a big following, it appears like you've got some kind of credence or authority, right? It appears, has a very good smoke and mirrors effect. It appears like you have some knowledge on, on the subject because if people follow you, you must have something good to say, right? That's why they're following you. Um, but just because someone's good at getting followers are good at business doesn't mean they know a thing or two about the human, human biochemistry. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Especially with accounts like the one that was posting about the high-waisted leggings the other day. Because they've got oh over a million God. followers. Over and they claim followers. to be an education page. So then the thing that's the most frustrating about that is loads of PTs who don't know any better will be following them and then telling their clients the things that they learned from their videos exactly and it's not their fault no and that's like just creating a a million 
PTs who are not helping people. That's exactly. That's exactly. No, that's no good. <laughs> so I okay, I'm gonna take a slight detour from my original plan, and I want to talk to you about the modelling a bit first. Yeah, um, all the people who I've met who have been models have definitely had their mental health impacted by the pressure of mm. having to be small mm-hmm. most of the time. Um, so maybe we can start with that. What was your experience like? Oh, of course. So, I mean, I'm 26 now and I started modeling when I was like 14 or 15. So they like you young, <laughs> which is already problematic in of itself. They fetishize a young teenager to be modeling things like bikinis and adult and adult women's wear, um, adult wear in general, when, you know, a photographer might tell a 14 year old to be sexy and this 14 year old hasn't even kissed a person before or you know identified with their own sexuality or understood what it means to be sensual there's so many problematic things in of itself to be that young starting up in an industry um but i mean to be fair when i'm very lucky i have really supportive and grounded family so they're always there on shoots and jobs with me and it was very very um innocent stuff things i was shooting sometimes i'd be wearing a weird high fashion balloon dress which <laughs> costs about five grand and i was thinking i'll never wear this in my life <laughs> um and it would just be silly fun things like that um i was very fortunate that it wasn't until i got a little bit older that's when photographers would get a bit creepy when my boobs grew um but apart from that i was very fortunate that they were very respectful on shoots so it wasn't necessarily the photographers um or the teams i know of models who've had nightmares of teams though like teams who you wouldn't believe are so disrespectful and treat you like objects i've had some bad experiences but nothing as bad as that however the the it, 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 the issue for me with my mental health was exactly that it was the pressure of trying to lose weight when you can't shave off hip bones and your genetics of course aren't good have you you know in, in a certain kind of size or realm of, of physique or, or, or stature and that's completely normal and fine and healthy um, and likewise there will be models who naturally can get to a very small stature because that's genetically possible for them uh, these are completely valid points but when you're not and you know you have a booker telling a 14 or 15 year old that you're too heavy or too fat and you need to lose weight that's massive because if you're that you're already at that age where you're incredibly insecure you're trying to find yourself way through life um this big wide world of school of 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 young of young friends of finding finding out who you are it's already massively complicated and then to have that thrown on you saying clients won't like you because you're this um you're not good enough for them you internalize that a bit as being not good enough full stop and there's been if this is kind of a tale as old as time and so many of my friends have had problems like this um so many of my friends who are naturally smaller than me have been told they're too big so sometimes it's not even a case of you actually being the wrong size but bookers can be so desperate to book you to get you um seen by a client and let's say you've got in your on your books maybe two brunettes or two blondes which you know so it's a silly example but let's say you've got that and one of them is booking loads of jobs maybe for some some strange reason maybe they've got more extroverted personalities so clients can chat to them more maybe they've got a bigger following on social media not that that was a thing back then but let's say for instance just for this example they have something that's a defining feature that gets them booked over the other blonde girl which just an example or blonde guy um and so the booker will be desperately thinking how can we promote this this person and that they'll go to is like lose more weight or look skinnier which is 
it's just so stupid as well because often clients um, will notice as well and say they didn't look healthy or you know they were they had no energy on set. Um, you can tell when a model is not is not well, um, and yet the book it, the bookers will still kind of promote this because they want to get the the, the 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 commission. They want to get the sale. Now that makes me makes make me feel it makes me sound like I'm cussed chastising all bookers as evil and um hashtag not all bookers um not all bookers as being really um supportive of the system it's not the case it's quite complex some bookers are really supportive but some of them have been so enmeshed in the system they don't even question it they don't even think oh this is ethically wrong and the industry now is i definitely think it's getting better i still think ethically um, and um, in terms of like their outlook and philosophy and how they treat and view girls or guys or models in general, um, I think there's a lot, there's still a long way to go that like they treat them as so disposable. Um, and, you know, there is definitely a positive move for more diversity. And I do think a lot of agencies actually in their hearts want to change, but some of them are unfortunately kind of going on the capitalistic bandwagon. And that trend for them will be like, right, let's get some money, let's milk this cow. Five months later, they're like, right, we've done our time. You know, we've done the Black Lives Matter hashtag. We've talked about the social justice issue. We've got a model that was trans in, and now we'd have to talk about it again. So that in of itself is a massive problem because you're treating something that is, is a, it's a really serious topic as something so frivolous, as something so throwaway. So as much as there is a lot of wrong, lot wrong in the industry and it affects my mental health a lot, um, there's a lot, there's, there's some positives in it now. Uh, as an older model, um, I, I say older as if I'm like on the shelf, but the, you know, as an older model, 26 is an older model. Um, I can view it as a creative, fun, a fun way of, of, of connecting with people and, and working on my platform. And I'm considered an in-betweeny, so I'm not properly plus size, I'm not straight size, but I will still be put into some plus sized shoots and everything like that because I know it's, it's crazy, it's crazy, it's crazy. Um, I mean, again, I don't take it personally, it's just the industry, but as you can see, there's still a long way to go. Um, so actually, funny enough, my, it was bad for mental health, but also simultaneously weirdly supportive at some points because I was getting really badly bullied at school and I was battling with depression and I didn't want to go into school every day. So sometimes having the prospect of having a weird and wonderful shoot in East London or talking to some random casting director about cotton, it was an odd. It was an odd escape, but it was weirdly cathartic and relieving. So it was. It was definitely, definitely damaging. I'm not supporting um, the notion of a young girl having to lose weight. However, contextually, as an individual, sometimes it was weirdly. It was weirdly a good escape, and it taught me social skills I wasn't getting at school. Yeah, I mean, I can totally see that. Having, especially if you were being bullied at school, having something else to do would have been so important. Mm. Um, I feel like as well, if you're starting that young, like at 14, at 15, you're going to be bigger just because you're still growing. And then at okay. 16, you're going to be bigger just because you're still growing. <laughs> exactly. And that's probably going to keep happening until you're like 20. Exactly. So people look at your pictures and be like, well, no, you're, look how much weight you've gained. It's like, well, yeah, I'm also half a foot taller. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, that's unfortunately why they pick girls so young, because they know it's a short lived period where they're going to be that. That, 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 that narrowing the hips and narrowing the chest so that they can shove them in the sample sizes and get them on the runway and milk them for that period of time in a career. So I think it's, it's that's why when I, as I've gotten older, you know, I did all the cool high fashion stuff when I was young. And I, I mean, again, 
loved is a um it's too strong a term i feel sometimes i hated working for hours and long and high heels and i don't think i appreciated it at the time being a snotty teenager but you know i've done working new york i've done the cool high fashion stuff and now i'm really happy doing the fun commercial stuff which pays way better the hours are better and the teams are way nicer they actually, you know, they, they want someone who's healthy and vibrant and more secure in themselves. They don't want a vulnerable teenager who will do what you say on set, which can involve so much, so much, um, so much danger. I mean, I know I have friends who have been sexually assaulted on shoots, which is disgusting because you're put in a position where if you say no, it goes back to your booker, you never work again. Mm-hmm. So it's really messed up. It's really messed up. It's partly why um, the Me Too movement is actually so prevalent and relevant for the modeling industry because it's part of that intertwined toxicity of if you say no, you're never going to book a job again, you won't work again in film, you won't work again on set. And so models are too scared to, to, rightfully so, if if that's their job and their livelihood and they don't want to shame their bookers or their agency, they won't speak up. And then they get blamed for not speaking up. You know, people say, why didn't she say that she got assaulted? Well, it's very complex, not only psychologically, but socially as well. There's a lot of frameworks that prevent that person, that model from speaking up. So there's a lot to be said about the industry, good and bad. But it was an interesting experience for me starting as a teenager. It was both, both horrendous for my mental health and both weirdly good at times. It was that escape. Um, um, though it wasn't good though, because I went to an all girls school. So then they, of course they got really jealous. I was like, I can't win. <laughs> I can't win. Because for me, it was just a job. But they were like, oh, she's off modeling. I'm like, it's not that fun, guys. <laughs> it's not that fun. Is that what you were being bullied for, being a model? Um, I was being bullied for mostly my depression because I didn't. I and I was quite a weird kid, like because I've only recently got an autism um, diagnosis and I didn't have it back then. So now I look back thinking, God, I understand so much of my behaviour um, and why I felt a bit odd and why I got picked on. Which it's not their fault. Like I know I'm I'm not a victim, but you know they were just they just didn't, didn't know. They didn't know they were kids. Um, obviously it hurt, but they were kids, they didn't know better. And now if they look back on their behavior now, they'd be like, God, that's, that was terrible because they've learned, which is the hope, the hope. Um, but uh, yeah, I was, I was always in the library reading philosophy books. I wasn't out going out with friends. I wasn't like on the town. I wasn't very extroverted. I would be rather, (laughs) I'd rather stay in and, and read or write or do something that was, um, more, um, more esoteric, I guess. Less, less, less pop, not as popular as um, what sixteen-year-olds are up to. Although I did partake in the emo phase, so you know, I wasn't that different. I was just <laughs> like everyone else. Although actually, where I was from in, in my school, the emo phase wasn't popular. So actually, <laughs> it did, it did, didn't help my image. <laughs> the brooding philo- philosopher emo, <laughs> not good. Gosh, I mean, if we had met when we were sixteen, although we weren't sixteen at the same time, but had we been? then we definitely would have been friends because I was in the library reading a lot of the time. That's it. It would have been like one of those high school comedies where we would have just banded up against (laughs) against them. (laughs) Yeah, it would have been great. So how did you segue from that into fitness? Or I guess kind of not segue because you're still modelling. But how did you end up in fitness? Um, So... Unfortunately, the story is not like this happy story of like, and I just fell in love with fitness at the first sight. I basically started going to the gym because obviously my agency told me to. (laughs) Um, And I didn't start lifting because I was like, oh no, that's going to get my hips bulky. I'm going to have an add an extra inch on my body. Oh no, God, I don't want that. So I would go in the gym and just be on a treadmill or do a Les Mills pass or do three in a row. 
I was just doing cardio, cardio, cardio. And inevitably, my body w wasn't changing as well. And also because I was so hungry after, I'd either eat loads or um, I'd just be absolutely miserable because I wasn't eating that much. And inevitably, my body would just be like, right, so you need to eat. And I'd have like a loaf of bread after like three weeks because they were like, come on, you need calories. Um, so at first, it was never the typical story of, of, of wandering in, lifting a barbell. But eventually because I wasn't losing inches off my hips because I was growing I assumed I was doing something wrong or that I wasn't I was I was messing up somehow so I hired a personal trainer and then I was like oh I can't I can't lift anything I don't want to get too bulky and he was like trust me you won't and then oddly enough after we started lifting not that this should be the aim like weight loss is never the aim or getting smaller is never the aim it was just funny how after months of trying of trying um to just hamster wheel myself off a treadmill, I actually got better results physically via lifting and being mindful of protein intake and using, and not actually, not just being like on the paleo diet, because <laughs> that was my go-to, but actually considering the, um, the macronutrients and the ramifications of what I was eating in terms of performance. Um, and again, what my modeling was initially my escape from school, but then going to the gym became my true escape because I was so looking forward to the hour in the gym where I felt really empowered, where I could work on myself, where, you know, people were really nice to me in the gym. We could chat about lifting. I didn't feel so weird and odd. Um, it was a nice little sanctuary. It was a sanctuary from both school and modeling because even modeling, it's a dangerous world of sharks, basically. Even though sometimes I felt naive to it, it was still out there. Um, but the gym was really safe. Like it was just, everyone had the same goal of getting fitter, getting better. Um, and everyone supported one another. And I liked that a lot. Um, so I got into it initially by quite superficial, superficial purposes, but it became something so much more. Um, and at the time I was having, suffering from really bad depression. Um, and the only reason I got out of bed really was, um, bless my parents, I love them to pieces. And they are so supportive of me, especially now. I just don't think they understood. Like at the time, they didn't really understand what was going on, which I completely get. If you see your child and that pain, you just don't, you don't know what's going on. And there wasn't the same conversation we were having um, about mental health and that, uh, now as there was then. So they didn't have the resources really. Um, so for me, I was getting out of bed because my mum was expecting me to go to school and do my thing. And she knew I was having a bad time and she was very sympathetic. Um, but it was, it was tough for me to do stuff. As, as you know, when, when you have a mental illness, it's bloody tough to do stuff. Um, but going to the gym was my reprieve. And it was like, okay, even if I can only just lift one, if I do one rep today, it's better than nothing. And I ended up just going there because it was like my one chink of light in the day of, of, of icky darkness. So it became something much more in the end. I think that's something that happens for a lot of people. Most people come into fitness for aesthetic reasons um, and then realize all of the other benefits that come with being stronger and moving your body as you go along. Mm, just absolutely. takes people a bit of time sometimes, I think. Definitely took me time. Um, I actually only became a personal trainer by accident. I was a journalist before um, and I'd lost loads of weight because my dad got sick and I started to panic about what would happen if I didn't take better care of myself because I was like gosh well I mean genetics um so I lost loads of weight trying all of the many many different things and I set up an online magazine as a way of holding myself accountable and learn learning all of the things um I realized now that I know more of the things that none of the things I was learning then were the actual things but <laughs> never mind <laughs> by the by 
and then premier internationals let me do their pt course for free in exchange for writing about it i was like yeah okay cool and then by the end of the course i was like oh actually i could totally do this this is fun um but i'd never actually lifted weights before that i am um, i was always into martial arts so that at the time i was doing kickboxing nice but growing up i was doing taekwondo so nice. i then was a person this is a side. So I was a personal trainer who'd literally been lifting for six weeks and then was teaching other people how to lift. And I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is how you do the thing. Um, which is kind of ridiculous in hindsight, but I didn't know any better at the time. But that, isn't that like the whole, I mean, I don't think, I don't think that's an indication of you at all, especially because it shows that you've learnt the movements really quickly. So if anything, it proves that you, you could coach very well. <laughs> thanks very much it's taken it's taken some time to get from that point to this point but i think i'm all right <laughs> um so what impact do you think our physical health has on our mental health and i guess vice versa yeah this is a great question i think it you can look at it in so many ways i like to use the biopsychosocial method or model when i look at clients and generally human beings because we're not just a bag of flesh, fleshy atoms. There are things that go on that are complex. But simultaneously, we can't just assume that everything is kind of constructed from what we see socially. I think there's a happy, happy middle um, where we can admit there's some biological goings on. And then there's obviously psychological machinations, which are triggered by what goes on about our sociological framework. And I think you can kind of explore all three and you notice that all three interpolate and just kind of make a nice little sweet spot or or kind of hellish storm of how we feel. Um, so a great example might be like how our nervous system responds to situations and how we might feel more anxious, for instance. Um, so for instance, we might be in a situation where something reminds us of, let's say, a really stressful situation. So if I go into a powerlifting gym or something like that, I feel very on edge because let's say, for instance, it reminds me of one of my abusive partners. And I just don't like going there. So for instance, I might go in and for some reason, even though I love deadlifting and I love lifting and I've never been to that gym before, I suddenly get an anxious response. My heart gets a bit faster. I might be sweating a little bit. I might be feeling more, more crabby. And that's because of the association I've had created in my head. So psychologically via the social aspect of me being in that environment where I felt very unsafe and that's having a biological effect to my body, which can impact the way I move, whether, I'm, whether or not I want to move, whether I move too much, so I feel exhausted by the end of it, um, and also how my body actually receives that information from the nervous system. So am I getting tingles? Am I feeling really on edge? Am I getting pulse? Am I getting into a, almost like a panic attack stage? You know, how far along the spectrum do you go in terms of that reaction? So you can have a literal link between how we perceive things mentally and how that acts in the body. And you see it all the time with clients in pain, right? So, you know, how someone perceives a movement, they're like, oh, I don't want to do it because I've got back pain or knee pain. But it might be that they've had a stressful situation that triggers that nervous system response, that brain's response to try and protect them from the pain again. And then as a result, they don't want to move or they don't want to exercise or they have a negative connotation with fitness. And likewise, you can obviously have a much more um, indirect view of how physical and mental health correlates with one another. So... You can look at things like um, socioeconomic status. So people, um, there's some really good studies on this saying that people who might have different socioeconomic status have, might have poorer um, or um, reported uh, poorer 
qualities of life and mental and mental mental general mental state but is that and is that because they have lack of access to exercise or lack of access or um to information about healthy eating or movement there's lots of factors there um and i think as well when you're in a state of poor mental health it can directly as well affect your physical movement because especially when you think about how the brain fundamentally runs on dopamine and such to move. So if you've got low levels of dopamine and serotonin, for instance, you're going to be much less, much more sluggish, much less likely to be jumping out of bed, being alert. And as a result, you're not going to be wanting to move as much, which can feed into the lack of dopamine and serotonin because we get that by movement and exercise. So it, it, I think it's a perfect storm. I think they both feed into each other so much that to say that, you know, I remember I was working with a colleague once and he said, oh, well, we're not psychologists. I was like, no, we're not psychologists. But I think if you, if you say psychology isn't involved here, I think you're completely wrong <laughs> because there's just so much neurobiological evidence and sociological evidence that both how we move affects our brain and how our brain currently is affects how we move. So I think that's why people should never feel ashamed if you know, they're having a stressful time and they react a certain way. Like when I'm anxious, I actually like to exercise more because otherwise... I can't sleep, I get very tingly because you get um, things like calcium deficits um, because you're not breathing properly. So actually by performing more cardiovascular exercise, for instance, you're actually helping balance out that um, calcium deficit you get from being in like kind of like a parasympathetic, um, a sympathetic nervous state constantly. Um, and what likewise, some people go into a fight or flight freeze response where they just can't move because it feels so painful and stressful for them to exercise. So that's why mental illness can be very, very debilitating because you let's say you were once training three times a week that becomes maybe one if at most but there's nothing to be ashamed of you've got biological things at play you've got a psychological narrative going in your head and you've got things that things outside you that trigger all both of those so it's a really complex thing that i could talk about for hours because i think it's amazing and i think it's a shame a lot of coaches overlook it yeah 100 percent. going back to the pain thing um I think it's really fascinating our response to pain because most of most of the time people are still feeling pain long after their injury is Absolutely. gone and it's like uh, an anticipation of the pain that they used to feel I think so a lot of the time when it comes to like rehabbing stuff it's more about teaching you to trust yourself to move in a space and that it's safe mm. than it is about fixing anything because the thing's fixed like the time did that like you you've you've done your time there's nothing wrong anymore um most of my clients yeah probably most are people who came with injuries um but injuries that were like years years old so mm -hmm. the injury wasn't really there anymore and it was the first bit was definitely the process of being like no no you can trust yourself mm -hmm. and i don't like i don't know why we do that why why we let the fear make the pain but i guess it's a protective mechanism to stop us from doing it again 100 it's really it's so interesting as you say and you know what that happens on a mental level as well not i mean it, 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 i think you can apply it across the board so obviously it's something that we experience in fitness and movement but how many times do we feel like we don't want to go do something or talk to someone because it reminds us of a traumatic experience as well like the brain as annoying as it is I would be more worried if someone didn't have that mechanism because then you'll you'd be like, oh, I don't have pain. I'm going to put my head on this hot stove because I can't feel anything. <laughs> but you know, the brain, it, you know, as annoying as um, those defense mechanisms can be, they do try and protect us. 
Same thing if you've got a, um, a patient or client who suffers from terrible generalized anxiety disorder or uh, who can't leave the house, especially right now with all this pandemic stuff, they, might get, they must be really, really suffering from all the, the, the automatic thoughts going around. You know, as much as it's useful for the brain to try and say, we're trying to protect you and keep you safe, to what extent is that stopping them from living their life? And same with a, a client with pain, to what extent is that pain stopping them from getting into a movement that's actually safe and effective for them? So, you know, there's points where you almost, you don't have to, you don't, not crossing their boundaries, but you almost have to have really difficult conversations with clients and not say it's in their head, but try and get them to a space where they feel confident and safe and empowered to move in a way that they might have thought they wasn't possible before. Yeah, for sure. I think that's why it's so important sometimes to speak to a coach or to a therapist or both um because it's about having someone help you create a safe space so you can do the things that you need to do um because like obviously the internet is full of all the information you could find all of all of the information about anything you want in the whole entire world um you just have to ask google but how what people need is someone to like hold their hand sometimes and just let them know it's okay that they can do a thing Um, I was reading something the other day about how our brains are wired to protect us when we're depressed. So we are essentially built to like stay close to home, which is why we don't really want to leave the house because that's the safest place. Because if you like have no energy and you don't really want to do any fighting, you don't want to be far away in case there's danger and you can't make it back. Mm -hmm. It's like something that's been with us forever that when our mood is low to like just stay still and stay home and avoid avoid trouble which again it's like a protective protective mechanism that is designed for a past life that isn't so relevant right now absolutely there's a really it's there's a really good article by jerry Coyne, who's an evolutionary psychologist and it's very relevant to what you just said it's he tries to make the argument i mean it's a very good it's a very good paper it's a very good essay but he makes the argument that a depression is um, an evolutionary advantage not he's not being not not he's not being unsympathetic he's saying for that reason it tries to protect you from doing something that could make you feel worse or put you in a lot of pain and i just think oh god yeah next time i have an episode i'm going to tell myself I'm going to survive. I'm doing this to, 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 to carry on my species and my legacy. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you just have to tell yourself the story that helps the most. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So in terms of like routine, why do you think routine would be helpful in terms of mental health, but then also physical health? Mm. So I think this is really interesting. And I think one of my biggest, and I'm someone who's very creative and messy and I'm all over the place, but I still love routine, essentially because it keeps me from going crazy. <laughs> if I didn't have routine, it would be like a colourful tornado. I need that. Um, um, from a neurobiological point of view, we want to be cultivating routine because the brain often doesn't like new habits at first. It feels quite unsafe. It's that same reaction. It wants to keep us safe. So anything that's a new, big, a big new shiny habit, it's like, whoa, what does that mean? Where am I? Am I feeling safe right now? Um, do I need to reject this and go back to my safe little cozy place? Um, and routines with small baby steps can really help the brain settle into a new formed habit. And as a result, it's, it's kind of like when you strengthen your muscles, right? When you go to the gym and you get stronger, when you try and take on a new movement after that, it becomes a bit more 
um, skillful and confident because you've been used to lifting, you've been used to moving, using, using your body in space, becomes a bit less, um, less of a chore. And I, I really do believe, and it's the research also suggests this, that basically the more you cultivate routine and, and have a handle on your habits and daily tasks, the easier it is to set out and try something new, which can be very exciting because it opens up a whole new world of opportunities of, of combining that structure and routine and order that is necessary for a functioning life with creativity and possibility, which is really cool. So you're not, you're not you know, confined to this one space. People think routine means you're you're dull and it means you have no more room for fun but I think actually it helps you open up much more um, because by having a functioning part of your life you actually get rid of help get rid of the stress and anxiety surrounding procrastination admin um, daily tasks that can feel overwhelming particularly if you suffer from mental illness and that the stress of that goes away and you're left with a massive aperture of feeling like, wow, now I've done that. What can I do next? Can I take on a new hobby? And I have the confidence to take on a new hobby because I know I've done X, Y, Z. And even though it was tough, I still did it. And that gives your mind the confidence to go on and take on new steps to explore what you like and who you are, which sounds very cheesy, but it's, um, it's all coming from routine, but it's, it's true. If you have the base solid foundations done, much like in training, um, it's easier then to be a bit more adventurous and explore. I know I'm making lots of analogies to fitness, but that shows how, how relevant it is. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's an awesome answer. I think you're right. We, we need routine to like hold us together sometimes, yeah. especially right now. Like we've had what, four months of having our routines totally shaken up. And I think the people who were probably coping the best are probably the ones that didn't change that much even though everything changed they kind of still did the same sort of things every day yeah just because then your brain's like okay well look I know what I'm doing these are my things I'm just gonna do them and then here's my extra time I'll go do something else but if if you let yourself just not do any of the things and you're like oh well now which things do I do now I have to make decisions every day about every everything and making decisions is really hard and exhausting. I don't think we're built for making all of the decisions all of the no, time. At least I'm not. I hate making decisions. <laughs> I think if you can make the decisions in advance so that you don't have to make them every time, you save yourself a lot of, like, hassle. 100%. I think that's the thing with willpower, right? So, like, people who rely on willpower to do stuff, like whether it's dieting or exercising or whatever... I think they have a much harder time than people who just take willpower out of the equation and then just set themselves up in a way where they do the thing. What Absolutely. Do Absolutely. So what can people do then to get into a solid routine? What does that look like? So everyone's going to obviously going to be really different. So it's, it's quite bespoke. Um, I think, um, the best thing to do is actually start really small because like I said before, your brain is going to reject anything new and big. So you have a lot of people, this is, this is often a, a trap that happens at like new year's resolution time where they say, I'm going to quit smoking. I'm going to run 10 K every day. I'm going to take on a new CrossFit challenge or something like that. And they put all this grandiose goals, which is really cool. Like, that's really cool. You want to go out there and, sh and show up in the world. Not, I'm not say saying it's bad, 
but they end up feeling worse about themselves because they end up maybe not fulfilling that goal um, and they feel like maybe I'm a failure, maybe that's why I can do it. But actually, it's your brain's neurobiology saying, what the hell is going on? This is too new, I feel really scared. And that you wanna almost trick your brain, you wanna start by going small. So it could be like, if say, you've always wanted to train in the morning, it might not even be training, you know, training, it might not even be having one session a week in the morning. It could be like you get up half an hour early than normal and do five minutes mobility work or movement, just random wiggling, which sounds really stupid, but you're just setting your brain up for success because your brain's like, okay, go up a little bit earlier, I can do this. And then the next couple of weeks, you segue into maybe doing like a 20 minute session twice a week. And then again, you can increase as you need to or want to. And I think that's one of the best, the best things you can do for success. I think literally my to-do list per day is something really simple. Like I start small, I start saying like, I'm going to write a hundred words today. And I end up writing like 800, but I've just said, if I'm feeling quite sluggish or tired, I'm like, oh, I've got things to do. And I see that I'm like, I can do a hundred. I can do that. It's not scary. It's not big. And then what, by the time I've got into a flow, my brain is like, this is pretty cool. And I'm feeling confident. And I, I like the way that this is reasserting my own values about myself. And then you go into the flow a bit more. So a hundred percent with routine, maybe pick two or three things you want to change in terms of you want to have as part of your routine. So morning exercise or reading in the morning or reading in the evening and try and start from like level one, level one. Or if you're like, if you like Pokemon like me, you start like level five, the baby Pokemon. And then you slowly level up till you get an evolution. And then you level up again as you need to and you adjust. So you start, you start small, always start small, which sounds, sounds quite patronizing, but the brain doesn't like change. Um, even, even in people who aren't very attuned to anxiety, it might occur. Um, so it's good to be on the safe side and then you feel really good. And then you, then you have to level up and you have to go up and then you feel great about yourself. But it's a bit more psychologically deflating to go down, being like, oh, I guess I should just decrease it a little bit. But you're on a much more um, positive domino effect if you start if you start relatively small and then you go up and up and up. Yeah, I love that. I'm glad that was your answer. I'm constantly telling people to just make it really, really easy, like so easy that it doesn't even look like it's going to be helpful. But then if you're doing that every day, then suddenly it's bigger. And then look at this. You have a habit that you've been doing every day. People, people just need to make it easy. Everyone just make it easy, guys. Easy as you can. Easy as you can. And then I guess, so when it comes to like depression, which we've, we've touched on a bit already, one of the main uh, features, I guess, is a complete lack of motivation to really yeah. do anything. So then what can people with depression do to convince themselves to just do some moving? Um, this is a really good question. And I think it's really important if you do have depression, please not feel ashamed. I mean, at my lowest, there were times where I would literally stay in bed all day and it physically hurt to get out of bed. Like it hurt. I got, it felt like I had knives stabbing my feet. I was like, I can't stand. I just want to stay in bed all day because it hurts to get up. It feels, it felt like a crushing weight. So don't ever feel guilty. Um, the reason why, um, I think it's also really important to also note that productivity doesn't define your worth. Like you are not, your worth is not based on how productive you are in a day. Um, your habits and what you want to do should be formed around like your own values, who you want to be for yourself. Like not what society says you should be or not what a capitalistic framework says you should be, but how you want to feel. And sometimes staying in bed all day is quite nice when you're chilling and watching something after a long week of hard work. And sometimes it's horrible because you're with depressive thoughts. So you want to make sure you're doing things for yourself and not for anyone else. 
So for me, I was like, I feel quite gross being in bed all day and it makes me feel worse about myself and my thoughts are already very negative. So I was like, what I'm gonna do is today I'm gonna brush my hair and I'm gonna go for a shower and I'm gonna brush my teeth. And that's, I literally started with that. I had like my to-do list, which I think I still have, which I can send you, Penny, it's so funny, it's on a flashcard. And it's actually like, today I'm gonna brush my teeth. Today I'm gonna shower. And I started like that and it sounds so stupid, but then those trips to the shower became me talking to my mom a bit more, or it meant that I felt a bit hungry finally, so I went to go and get breakfast. Um, and then me brushing my hair meant that I actually had to get up and maybe thought, eventually I was like, maybe I should get changed as well. Maybe so I could feel more presentable. And it's just like an, a pot, again, we wanna be making sure you start to really fill your life with more, I hate positivity, it may sound so to toxically positive and annoyingly cheerful, but just less oppressive, less, less numbing. You wanna to start to feel like you, you're alive again, which can be really hard when you don't wanna live. So you wanna be doing habits that affirm your existence rather than try and drag you down. So little things like, that bring you joy as well. It could be like listening to bird song and tick that off, write that as your to-do list. Like today I listen to the birds, I tick that off, which sounds so stupid. But then by the end of the day, you've done like seven things, even if you stayed in bed, which is pretty cool. And then you're like, oh, I've actually done something. Actually, I'm really, I feel really good in myself, which can really help counter the feelings of, of, worth, of unworthiness because they can be really pervasive. So again, this time you want to start micro. For people who are, neurotypical or don't really suffer from mental illness you want to start small but for people with depression you want to start like micro <laughs> like micro <laughs> yeah that makes such good sense because it's so hard like if you don't want to do anything it's it's just real hard just it's start really hard. it's not laziness either you've literally got a physical illness one of the one of the things i told my psychiatrist when i quit my my old job um because I was, I was really, I was suffering from depression. I told them and I was expected to pull like 30 PT sessions a week. And I was like, I, I can't, I can barely get out of bed. And I was like to him, like, I just feel stupid. I feel like I'm making it up. I feel like I'm being depratic. And he said, no, depression is a physical illness as well. It literally changes your um, if, um, biochemistry to the point of not wanting to do anything because that's what your brain does. Your brain is like the powerhouse of everything you do. So of course, if you've got a mental illness, everything you do is gonna be slower, it's gonna feel slower, it's gonna be not as effective. That's not because of you as a person, it's because you've got an illness. That's, it's, it's a normal response for your body to be doing that. I look forward to a day when mental illness is seen in the same way as physical illness is. So then people aren't like, oh, well, it's in your head. Because like, yeah. Yeah, it is in my head, but my head is where all the important stuff is. <laughs> it's in my head but my head is the thing that does everything so <laughs> if anything <laughs> kind of right it's an important bit um so what are some helpful like mind emotional training tools that people can use to start building their self-efficacy we've touched on it a bit about like starting really small and doing stuff so there's two really good methods I like. What, they're both actually from, so one of them is from mostly mainstream CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and the other one's from dialectical behavior therapy. So it's like an offshoot of CBT. So the one I'm going to mention now about CBT is very habit-based. So it's great if you want to change a habit or great if you want to try and introduce a new activity into your daily life. So it's like a cost benefit analysis sheet, which sounds so boring because it sounds like statistics and you're talking about life change and lifestyle, which is not the two don't normally twain, but it's really good at trying to make you 
confront the irrational thoughts, which we all have, we're human, irrational thoughts towards change. So a great example might be like, I sat at a table where I'm like, okay, co um, cost benefit, like pros, cons. So pros of changing, cons of changing, and then pros of, not, pros of not changing, cons of not changing, and I write them all down. So pros of changing, let's say I wanna get up half an hour earlier. Pros of changing means I have half an hour to do some yoga or to read. I feel really energized actually. It means I have better structure of my sleep because then I'm not, I know I'm not gonna to go to bed really late because I'm gonna be more disciplined with how I sleep. I'm gonna be able to be, speak to my boyfriend a bit more. I, um, I just have a bit more routine. I can tidy my messy, messy workspace, which is always a tip. I can do something to set up for my day, which means I'm gonna feel a bit better in myself. And it means it's gonna to translate to other things in the rest in, 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 as, I, as I go on my day. And then for instance, a cons of changing, because it's really important you acknowledge what you find hard about it, otherwise you never get over it. Um, a con of change might be like, I really like sleeping and <laughs> I love a good lion and it will be tough. It will be tough and slightly painful to get up a bit earlier. And by acknowledging and facing that, you know, okay, it will be hard and that's okay because when you start to look at the pros and cons, the pros are like 10 and the cons are like three or four. And you're like, okay, it will be hard, but look what I get in exchange for that difficulty level. I get all those things, which is really cool. Um, so I really like the pros and cons sheet. I actually have one on Google Drive, so I can, I can send one to you as well, so you can pop one up, so people can just take it, because I've got it for free. I use it for my clients, but people can use it, because it's really good. It's, well, it's very basic, but it's, it's pretty useful. Um, and the other, the other approach is more about self-regulation for emotions. So great if you're feeling anxious, particularly during this time of, what the, what the hell is going on, Ari? Um, <laughs> so basically it's known as like the wise mind in DBT, where you know you're feeling an emotion and it feels very real and it feels very painful um, and you embrace it, you don't deny it. You're not like, oh, I'm fine, but really you're dying inside. You embrace what you're feeling and you accept it, but you do the exact opposite of what your emotion tells you to do, which sounds horrible, but it trains your self-regulation and your nervous system to accept and embrace your emotion, but not let it overpower you. So for instance, a great example for me is like, if I'm really anxious, my feelings are telling me, don't avoid all conflict. Don't speak up for my needs. Don't, I need, I want to shrink away because my anxiety is telling me. So I need to do the exact opposite. I need to be a bit bitch. I need to be a bit more bullshy. I need to speak up a bit more, even though it's horrible. And my anxiety is telling me, don't do that. I need to do the opposite because then my and the anxiety goes away over time because my brain realizes my emotions are there and they're valid, but they don't run my actions. So that's a really good one as well for cravings. Um, not that you shouldn't eat what you like, but if you are trying to establish a new habit, like for me, I really, I am trying to eat less chocolate because I get tired during the day because I'm like just eating sugar and fat. It's probably not good for my productivity or energy levels, but you know, I'm doing that purely just so I feel a bit better. And even if I have that strong, enormous craving, I can use that tactic to acknowledge the emotion, but do something different, which actually helps the emotion in the long run much better than a short-term action. So they're two really good tips that you can use for sure. That's awesome. Thanks for those. The doing the opposite of what your emotions are telling you to do sounds really, really hard. Like, especially with anxiety-based things. Normally, if I'm anxious of like a particular situation, engaging with it will actually just make me cry <laughs> 100%. so then I guess maybe you just have to engage in it anyway and cry anyway and then get used to crying and then maybe you stop crying kind of like you're just flooding your brain with this new thing that you just have to do 
it's also a bit like um, graded exposure, right? So it's a bit like, okay, you should never feel really unsafe. So you obviously want a professional guidance with that. So you should never feel like I'm going to die. I'm going to feel really unsafe or, or end up being really upset. You don't want that. But a bit of discomfort is okay because then you're starting to train yourself. So it's about a, um, a sweet spot where you slowly expose yourself to discomforting scenarios. But very slowly, very slowly. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like a really helpful thing though, right? If you always just avoid the things that make you uncomfortable, you'll probably never get any better at a lot of things. <laughs> what sort of questions can people listening to this ask themselves when it comes to building some helpful behaviours? I think the number one question would be like, what are my values? What are my values? Who do I want to become for myself? Um, and how can I accept my humanity whilst also moving forward they're three really good ones because they're quite accepting you're not trying to be like some tony robbins entrepreneurial self-help guru where you you kind of low deep down hate yourself and you're just you're striving for something you're not really sure of you're just really happy you, you end up being accepting of who you are but also acknowledging that life is about growth and exploring both the inner and outer worlds and it's quite rewarding without being punishing or um or without being punishing but it's also it's also showing you that there are new ways of thinking new ways of being new ways of acting and it, it makes if i think if you if you act on a values-based system it's so much better than having just trivial habits and to-do lists because it's then the driving foundation of why you do things and if you always have a why of why you do something it becomes so much more powerful and much more ingrained in your psyche so you do it yeah, 100%. If you know your why, everything becomes so much easier. Yeah. Um, I'm going to get you to repeat those three questions for the people who weren't listening properly the first time. <laughs> so that was, um, what are my values? How can I accept my humanity, but also move forward? And who do I want to become? Just purely for myself, not for anyone else. Nice. Yeah, I mean, I think things like this are just great. It's so important to have these conversations with yourself, mm. whether that's like you just thinking in your head or literally sitting down with a paper or a journal to actually answer the questions and be like, well, what do I want? Who, who do I want to be? Mm. Especially when it comes to habit type things, because it's like, okay, well, who do I want to be? Mm. What does that person do? Mm. Okay, well, I'll start doing those things then, which makes it a lot easier. Mm. So you mentioned earlier philosophy. Where does philosophy come in in this story of fitness and psychology? Um, it's a really interesting question. Philosophy um, was one of the reasons I was bullied at school or had no very little friends um, because I preferred reading Albert Camus and Aristotle than going out getting drunk on Richmond Green, which, by the way, I still did because it is a rite of passage as a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> underage drinking don't do it guys anyone listening the <laughs> ride of passage with a bacardi breezer gotta do it um well for me again it 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 helped um feed me questions about myself and the human condition and why i would behave or think in certain ways that seemed counterintuitive to what i was doing so for instance you know why was i really anxious and secure about myself when i was still a model doing very extroverted things on a shoot didn't make sense and these books started to help me delve into the human condition that's this is one of the reasons i think philosophy is kind of the forefather to psychology 
it holds quite a pure wisdom that is then explored through boring maths and statistics. <laughs> so, um, so it definitely holds um, psychology's hand, I think, in a lot of its regards to exploring um, our cognitive processes and the beautiful irrational world of being human. And I realised that a lot of philosophers talk about how can we grow, how can we navigate the world around us. And I find, as I mentioned before, fitness is so intertwined with everything we do. It can be a sign of how we're feeling. It can be a sign of how we want to feel. It can also help us figure out who we are in a sense. As you say, you, know, you can walk into a gym and not have any intentions of training there, but end up being, having a, fam like a family, a community there, and seeing yourself grow as a human being more so than you ever did before you joined the, the facility. So even though it can be hard to see in quite a secular, modern, flashy, flashy world, I do think um, the world of fitness holds such symbolism and power for people. And philosophy does that. And I think the way we approach, everyone has different approaches to lifestyles and habits. And it's amazing how different philosophers also have different approaches to habits and lifestyles and just ways of living. And I find the two mirror each other really, really well in a funny way. Um, especially when you when you kind of see a client going from their on their own journey and seeing them progress very similar to some of the works philosophers talk about how a human being progresses even if it might not be in the same grandiose existentialist kind of terms it's a very similar path and I find it really interesting um, and it's helped me enormously understand clients and myself um, in general, I think the problem with philosophy is it's not very inclusive. So it's a big issue I have with it. Some of it sometimes you feel like you're just talking to old white men <laughs> and you're like, do you have, I mean, I know it's great navel gazing, talking about existentialism and absurdism, but you know, why are we talking about any of the oppressive issues outside in the world? But there are great philosophers out there who discuss society, societal issues. Um, and that can also feed into how someone approaches fitness. So the beautiful thing about philosophy is that it's not just a, it's not a monolith. You can go for the Kants, the Nietzsche's who talk about self-development and improvement of the self of one as an individual. Kant was probably not the right um, example there, but I just use an example of an old white man, basically, <laughs> that's cheating. But then you have amazing, wonderful philosophers um, like Foucault, who talks about um, society and um, societal, societal constructivism um, and how things are formed um, outside of our realms as kind of like a social constructs, which are really interesting. Um, and like Angela Davies, who is one of the finest contemporary philosophers talking about racial injustice. And people think, oh, it can't possibly link to fitness, but it is. Fitness is an external social issue and external social issues will feed into one another and how people feel in a setting. So of course you need to read about what these thinkers talk about how we should stand up to injustice or how we should act about it, how, how we can be a better person around it. I think you can absolutely read the old classics and also the more contemporary, um, more, I guess you could say more um, uh, activist, uh, activism charged works, which are not, which is not a pejorative at all, by the way, um, and see how they, the, the two meet because those contemporary writers have been reading the works of, of the greats for years and they've used their thoughts and words and theories on morality and ethics to form their own opinions. And, you know, fitness is just more about, it's not just about the individual, it's about how we can be a better community and how we can get people feeling better about themselves, it's about helping people. So I found philosophy helps people think about that. 
So I find that it's a weird link, but I found it was really relevant. And that's why I love it so much. It's why I love exploring the two so much. I love that. I think with philosophy, there are so many different bits that like whatever you're thinking about, someone's probably already thought about it before and like you can find them and they can help guide you. I had a real existential crisis when I was at uni in probably the midst of the worst depression that I've had. And Sartre really saved me. I actually have a tattoo on my leg from his book Nausea, no where the main character's sitting on a bench watching a tree blow in the wind and he suddenly realises that nothing matters. And I just was like, oh yeah no nothing matters why am I being so upset about these things it's so funny you say that because my massive depressive episode was my revelation it was actually after um I I was during a really suicidal period and I picked up the myth of Sisyphus and obviously the first sentence is like (laughs) the biggest philosophical issue is suicide (laughs) I was like I picked the right writer and it it, it does it's weirdly freeing existentialism is weirdly freeing it's like there's a meme there's a really funny meme where um it's like it's two people it's like a really sad guy and it's like oh nothing matters and it's like versus nothing matters (laughs) (laughs) because if nothing matters you can create your own meaning because there's no structure that that prevents you from creating it exactly i really enjoyed existentialism i think it's my fave Sartre is one of one of my faves for sure. Um, great. No Exit's one of my favourite plays. Yes, that was actually the first thing of his that I read. That was before I went to uni because my sister had it. But yeah, great little philosophy bond. Good Place is based off No Exit, by the way. Fun fact. Yeah, that is a great fact. Fun fact. That is a good fact. That was really fun. Thank you so much. Wait, wait, no. Tell me your fun fact. Oh, my fun fact. Um, okay, I have thought about this because, again, it's my go-to. I'm fluent in Spanish and Portuguese because purely because I did a degree in it, <laughs> not because I'm anything special, but I went to uni and apparently it's, it's a fun fact now. <laughs> that is very cool. That means you can totally escape the UK and go somewhere else if they're still letting British people in. Well, that's the thing. I think, I think <laughs> we're going to be some little island. <laughs> I can fake my way out. I can just be like, listen, I lived in Spain and I prefer it way better to this place. <laughs> oh, I would really like to move to Spain. Well, thank you so much, Sophie. This has been real great. And I feel like we could totally be friends now. So this is nice. <laughs> right, it is really nice, isn't it? Accidental conversation, accidental friendship conversation. <laughs> um, so right, guys, until next time, I hope you enjoyed that and we'll be back soon.